You're listening to Music Trails, a podcast dedicated to independent music artists, their music, stories, and the people behind the scenes that support them. I chose the name Music Trails because just like no two hiking or biking trails are the same, the same holds true when it comes to the trails and journeys of our guest. This is season two, and the focus will be on Winfield, Kansas's Walnut Valley Festival, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary in September 2022. We'll hear from current, past artists, and people that support the festival in various ways. In this episode of Music Trails, we meet Tommy Emmanuel, maybe one of the best guitarists on the planet, certainly your host's favorite. Tommy will share part of his music trail, which started as a youth in Australia, playing and touring with the family band, reaching out to his boyhood idol, Chet Atkins, and having the life-changing opportunity of meeting and studying under him as a young man. Tommy talks about his guitar camp, which at the time of this interview is just kicking off in Nashville, meeting and collaborating with the great Mike Dawes, and sharing his unique songwriting and performance techniques. Tommy closes the episode reminiscing about his Walnut Valley Festival debut and shares with us the backstory to his popular song, Fuel. Music Trail listeners, I am pleased to introduce to you our guest today, Tommy Emanuel. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And you're <laughs> in uh, in Nashville. I am. I'm in, I'm actually in my house, and okay. uh, yeah, I'm, uh, we're about to start my my camp yes. here for the next four days. Yes, and I'm I'm also playing. Uh, my first show in the the new CMA Theatre at the Country Music Hall of Fame the, this Saturday night or the, this weekend anyway. That's great. So, tell us tell us about the the music camp. Well, it's uh, I do these camps in different parts of the world. Next year, I've got uh, my first camp is in March and it's in Iceland in in Reykjavik, uh, and I'm having. European instructors. I'm having Martin Taylor come in from Scotland, Mike Dawes come in from Bristol, uh, Joshua Stefan coming from Germany, and uh, a local uh, teacher as well, a brilliant uh, guy there, Bjorn. And uh, I can't. I think it's Torsten, Bjorn Torsten. He's he, he's great. But I've played in Reykjavik a few times, and it's it's got a great culture. It's a great Iceland is a great country. So there'll also be a camp here in Nashville next September, a year from today kind okay. of thing. Um, so we, we have to plan all that stuff well in advance. This year, I've, I'm focusing my teaching on song arrangements, finding the best keys for songs and things like that. And then I have two other instructors that specialize in the basics of getting people started playing fingerstyle because not everybody wants to do that at, sure. at my camps. Sure. So, uh, of course, you would imagine coming to a camp which bears my name that it would be about learning how to play 
thumb and finger style, uh, but I I teach all styles. Okay. Um, so, but I've I've got a couple of young guys who are such good instructors at how to break down a Merle Travis tune like a nine pound hammer and just show people how to break it down and, and make it work. Okay. So, and the camp is, is really geared towards uh, it's open to players, music lovers of all yeah. levels and interest, but what, yeah. how would you describe the profile of the, the typical camper participant? Um, a typical camper would be somebody who's wanting a fire lit you know that they want to be inspired and this is what these camps do they it's four days of nothing else but learning listening jamming uh, and and interacting with other like-minded people you know and my message to them is you know we've got to have fun doing this but we've got to be disciplined and i and i'm going to do my best to give you the tools for you to go away, put the work in, and become the player that you you hope you could be. So you know, I I give people tips and and look at stuff and and try to help people every single day of my life, not not just at my camp. Like this morning at five a.m., I was looking at a video that a guy had sent me, and he was playing my arrangement of the Beatles song, Michelle. And he was playing all my harmonics. He was playing the whole thing exactly. But I didn't hear Michelle. I heard somebody playing all the right positions. So I had to then say to him, okay, good work. You've got all the positions together. I didn't hear any bad fluffs or whatever. But I was, you must go and listen to Paul McCartney sing Michelle, learn the words, and then interpret the song through all that stuff that you've worked out because that's what I do. Sure. And it works, you know. Sure. You need to go, you need to have, it's a game changer for me when Chet Atkins started to tell me stuff like, you know, right. um, learn the words to the songs and it'll help you play the song better. And it just that, changed my whole perspective and gave me an insight onto how the hell he got to play melody so wonderfully that he didn't sound like anybody else. And it's because he was singing the song. He was just singing through his guitar right. and the song is in your head, you know? Sure. So there's, there's, there's so much of it, you know, but at a camp, I will talk about the importance of tuning Spending time tuning. Tune your guitar and learn the idiosyncrasies of how you can get that guitar so in tune. You know, you have to start with your tuner and, get, and line it all up and make sure that that's saying that it's perfect. Now use your ears. Now use chord shapes and listen and pick which string is a fraction out or whatever, you know. And so I talk about tuning, working with a metronome, Get you know when you when you've got your time together, the stress goes away from from your playing life. When you don't have to worry about the time, when you enjoy where uh, your own playing because it grooves, you know. Sure. So all this stuff is designed to help people, 
and the the instructors that I choose uh, are all people of great knowledge and experience, and you'll be able to learn so much from every single one of them. So, and, and then you have uh, some great guest artists as well. Oh, absolutely! Well, tomorrow Dan Kaminsky is going to come in and sing, and I'm going to interview him on stage. I'm going to ask him questions that I think the group might really benefit from. Sure. And I haven't told Dan what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I want that to be spontaneous and really right there in the moment, yeah. you know, That's awesome. Sam Bush is Sam Bush is coming in the morning. Nice. Uh, and, and I haven't told Sam what we're doing either. Sure. But I do that stuff on purpose because yeah. those guys are great at sharing their knowledge. They're just as passionate about it as I am. And, and I, I'm, I'm uh, I'm really thrilled for the campus, you know. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, and then we do stuff like Friday night. We're playing a show at a place called the City Winery, but it's a private show. It's only for the. It, it's a proper gig with a with a, a beautiful stage and lights and sound and all that. And we come and have dinner, and then you know, two hundred of the campus get in there, and we put on a show for them. We do a show. And we and I'm going to. I've already changed how the show runs already, so that I can get a chance to play some Django tunes with John Jorgensen, and that uh, Muriel Anderson and I can do a couple of things, and you know, and and then uh, Robin Trey, uh, Rob Ikes and Trey Hensley can come on later in this show and just really play with the power they play with, and then I can join them at the end, and, and so it's like. The audience get to experience a, a show with all their instructors at their best kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And then the Saturday night, uh, as part of the uh, as part of the camp, uh, everybody's coming to the CMA theater, but the entire group will witness my sound check and see how a sound check works, uh, lighting things sound all that staging they're going to see how it all works and how we put a show together oh. and that's part of their uh, education yeah. you know that is so awesome mm, you, thank you you mentioned uh mike mike dawes yeah and uh recently uh just last month you released a uh, new single with him yeah the gold how, how did how did you yeah. meet uh how did you meet mike i i um Mike used to come to my shows when he was a young lad. Okay. Uh, when I was two, I was living in England and touring in England a lot. And, uh, and Mike and his mom and dad used to come to shows. And, uh, and then fast forward to like, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, I saw him on YouTube and I said, wow, this guy's, he's really got something, you know, it's not my style uh, but I like what he does, yeah. and I love the fact that he's a hundred percent for the audience. Yeah. You know, and so um, I said to my manager Brian Penix, I said, "Let's why don't we book this young English guy for some shows and see what he brings to the night?" And and he was great, and we just hit it off straight away. Yeah, and and I, I said to Mike. One of the big things that I respect about you, not, not just your abilities or your, your guitar playing or any of that, but the fact that you're passionate for the audience. You, you, you want the audience to have the best time 
I said, and that's what you need to bring to a show. Sure. You know, and so, yeah. And then we did a couple of tours where uh, during the afternoon in the dressing room, he'd be playing something and I would say, can I just come in and, and I'd sit and I'd end up playing the melody with him and learning the song. And we, and it sounded good, so we played it at the show, and the audience loved it. So we ended up recording them, and then we just kept doing that. You know, I was trying to find a way of of playing with a guy who's totally self contained, and and a very different style, but completely self contained. How could I bring something to that that would enhance it? And usually, as a musician, I'm always thinking of how can I make the, the song better with whatever I bring, you know? If he's got it all together, then I'm going to double the chorus and make it like a, a vocal group, you know, and then just kind of fill out the verses in a more subtle way. But then when the chorus comes around, we nail the chorus together. And so uh, with, with a song like Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, because it's such a, a grunge anthem. Yeah. It's a young person's anthem. Uh, I just, uh, well, I knew the song, but uh, I'd never played it as an instrumental. So uh, he already had a good arrangement of it. So I said, I'm just going to listen to Nirvana and I'm going to, I'm going to listen to them sing it a few times. And I had to listen to how he sang praised and all that sort of stuff. And then I, I found a way of kind of toughening it up uh, for the two acoustic guitars we found these clusters of chords that, that could create tension and power, you know. of all this it's if you can find i always know it when i when i'm playing with somebody where there's 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 electricity there's chemistry you know and the fields of gold uh song that you do is just so beautiful oh oh, sting wrote a masterpiece i mean uh, not many songs are that repetitive and yet you can't hear it enough yeah you know that's a sign of great writing when it's that repetitive it's just he just does that over and over. Yeah.
it's how you do it and how you phrase it uh, that that keeps the listener totally melted, you know. Sure, sure. So, and I, I, I'm so grateful to, you know, Chet Atkins when in being a part of my childhood because I noticed straight away when he played melody, it wasn't like anybody else. It was different, and I couldn't figure out what it was until I met him and I realized he was being the vocalist. He was being the singer when he played the melody. I said, ah, that's what it is, you know? So I always think like a singer when I'm, when I'm playing. So you uh, got introduced to Chet Atkins, started listening to his music when you were quite young then? I was seven when I heard him. Oh, wow. Okay. I'd already been playing and touring for a while. Right. I started very young. We formed a family band and I was the youngest. So I had two older brothers and an older sister. Yeah. And we, we were the Emmanuel Quartet and we played Ventures music, Dwayne Eddy, The Shadows. Uh, we played some Hawaiian music because my sister played lap steel. And uh, we were in the entertainment business and we were loving it. Absolutely yeah. loving it. It was really hard and we were always broke. But, you know, we just kept at it until dad passed away. He, my dad suddenly died uh, of a heart attack uh, when he was 49, you know, and I was 10 years old. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, it was really young. But by that time, I'd already, I'd already kind of had a good working thing going with my, my brothers and sisters. My mum, once she, you know, got over the shock of everything, she called uh, called all the kids in and said, well, what do you want to do? We can stay here and you can go to school and we can have a normal <laughs> life. And we, we all went, we want to go on the road. We want to play. And, sure, this is fun. So, so she, she uh, a touring act, uh, reached out to us who, who, who knew us and gave us a job and so put us on the road with them. And we did that until the, the government, uh, forced us off the road and forced us children into normal schools so we weren't allowed to tour and play until we were older so I ended up going to a normal public school but I was teaching guitar two days a week two nights a week and uh, I was uh, I was working in a uh, the local grocery store on the weekends and Friday and Saturday night uh, my brother and I formed another band and we were playing for dancers and stuff like that. So we were just constantly working all the time. Right. You know? but, we were just but, tr trying to make a living. Sure. That, that, you know, and, and that's all we, we knew, you know, and, and whatever new song came up. I remember the first time that we heard Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. And then, then we heard the Buckaroos record that had um, Buckaroo, Happy Go Lucky Guitar, uh, uh, Applejack, all those uh, those tunes from that album, and my brother and I worked out how to play them, and it was like we got something new here, and, yeah. and it was just it was just great. And every every new Chet Atkins record would would have its you know glorious moments of holy smoke, how am I going to work this out, and you know, and all the all the, these these new songs, and then you know people wanted us to play what was on the radio, which was you know. Uh, British music, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Herman's Hermits, and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, um, Eric Clapton, 
Uh, and then Neil Diamond, Gordon Lightfoot, Glenn Campbell, uh, um, Carol King, James Taylor, and so forth. So it goes on, you yeah. know. How did you meet or win and, and win uh, for the first time Chet Atkins? Uh, I I wrote him a fan letter when I was 11, just after my, my, my dad died. I I don't know what why, but I just retreated into his albums. They became my place of comfort, I guess, you know. And uh, I just decided one day that I would write him a fan letter. So I did, and I said, "Dear Mr. Atkins, I'm a my name's Tommy, and I'm from Australia. I've got some of your albums. I'm trying to work them out, and I love your playing. Blah blah blah." Uh, thank you for your beautiful music. I hope I get to meet you one day. Your greatest fan, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I sent the letter and I put on the envelope, Chet Atkins, Nashville, America. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Because there were no zip codes in 1966. And, uh, well, not in Australia anyway. Well, it worked because he got it. He wrote back to me. It was all typed and it had the big RCA Victor records all in gold at the top and, sure. and, and his signature. And, and then there was a black and white publicity photo signed to me. Yeah. And so, you know, two months later, I came home from school and my mom said, put your bag down and go in your room. There's something on your bed. And I looked, there was this big brown envelope, you know, with eagle stamps. And I went, it's from America, you know, and I opened it and it was from Chet. It was just like, I couldn't believe it that he would, you know, in 1966, 67, he was producing uh, Waylon Jennings, uh, Don Gibson, Skeeter Davis, Jim Reeves, you name it, all those people. Sure. He was the busiest guy on the planet yeah. and he took time to write to some nobody in the yeah. country at the other side of the world. Yeah. He told me years later that he had no idea that anybody in Australia had ever heard of him. And I said, <laughs> I told him, I said, you were the name on everyone's lips. Wherever I went, if someone heard me play, they'd say, have you heard Chad Atkins? <laughs> you know, and it's like, who hasn't, you yeah. know? So that's awesome. So, so we stayed in meeting, touch. Yeah. yeah, we stayed in touch and um, he sent me his office phone number. And in 1980, so I was 25 then, in 1980, I contacted him and I said, I'm coming to America. He said, great. Well, when will you be here? And I told him then he said, I'll be in town call my office. And I said, okay. So we arrived into America and I saw Elton John at the Hollywood Bowl. And then I flew to Nashville and, uh, and I rang Chet's office two days in a row. And both days, his secretary said, Mr. Atkins is in the studio. Mr. Atkins is playing golf. Mr. Atkins is home. Blah, 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 you know. yeah. And anyway, so the third morning, I rang right on 10 a.m., and he answered the phone. Oh, wow. I said, I'm looking for Mr. Atkins. He said, this is he. <laughs> and I said, Chet, this is Tommy Emanuel from Australia. 
thinking he won't have a clue who I am or blah, blah. He says, hey, Tommy, I was just listening to you. And I said, what? Someone had been sending him tapes Ah, of me playing. Okay. And I didn't know that. He was well aware of what I was doing. And I had no idea. So, yeah, I went down to his office and he came down the stairs and there he was, you know, he, there he was just looking just like he was on my records that I had of him, you know, and, and we played together and we hung out all afternoon and it was, we became instant friends. And then over the coming years, we became like family and, and he insisted that I come and stay at his house and, don't stay in a hotel when you're in Nashville. Come and stay with us. And oh, it was, you know, waking up in the morning in the granny flat in his house and making coffee and have him come in uh, at eight o'clock in the morning with his coffee cup ready to drink coffee with me and showing me how to use the uh, ham radio and all that sort of stuff and telling me stories about working with the Carter family. And, and yeah, every day I'd be like, is this really happening? Wow. You know? That is yeah. so amazing. I love yeah. that. Tommy, many of your, your songs are uh, instrumental. Yeah. And... I'm no good with words, Mark. <laughs> what, do, do the names of the songs, and let's take, for example, Lewis and Clark, uh, yeah. which, is, which is beautiful. Does the, does the name precede you writing the song? or Sometimes. Does... Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay. For, like, for instance, with Lewis and Clark, I didn't know anything about Lewis and Clark. I didn't know that part of that American history because uh, I grew up in Australia and they taught the English system because we were, we were a part of the um, British colony, you know, Australia is. So we, I didn't know anything about Lewis and Clark and the uh, Louisiana Purchase and all that stuff. I knew nothing about it. And I was teaching guitar at Lake Oswego at the Lewis and Clark College. Uh, and I got a break because a, a guest teacher came in to teach a blues class. And I went outside and sat in the sun. And I'm sitting there, my face up to the sun. And all of a sudden, these people start walking by me, dressed like they're in a Western movie, you know. And I said to one of the ladies, I said, what, what's going on? Are you... Uh, are you in a film or are you in a play? And she said, no, we're walking the Oregon trails. And I said, what's the Oregon trails? <laughs> she said, you know, where Lewis and Clark went. And I said, who are Lewis and Clark? And she laughed at me. And I said, I'm from Australia. I, I don't know about it. She said, oh, go down to Borders and buy the journals of Lewis and Clark and you'll find out. And I did a man, what a story. And I got so inspired by that story. I said, I've got to write this song. I I don't know how I'm going to tell the story. How am I going to tell the story of the great unknown, the American West, uh, the rivers, the valleys, the prairies, and the native people, the people that are already there. How am I going to tell that story? And I found a way. Yeah, yeah. And I found a way of making space, of of it feeling like it's constantly moving, and all those things. Mm-hmm. 
and um, yeah, so it, it was a beautiful and it was a hard one to write because it had to be simple. You know, uh, I had to say a lot with a little bit sure. and leave space and all that. But yet that feeling of momentum where the chords are always moving, you know, like yeah, I tell this to students, one of the keys to making a song interesting is constant moving. Now, it, one of the greatest examples is John Lennon's Imagine, because it's just da 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 da, and he just then dum, da 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 da. It, it just keeps moving and and loping along, you know. And I said. You know, they're always the best songs. You can't hear them enough. You know, I found a way of all that stuff, but it all, it was like divine intervention. I just use my instincts to know when it's right and when it's not. Okay. And um, so, but uh, I could have called the song Sacagawea. Sure. But some people wouldn't relate to that because they wouldn't know what that word was or what it meant. Yeah. But when you say Lewis and Clark, they go, oh, the story of Lewis and Clark. Okay, we know what that is. Although I must tell you, when I first started playing that song, some people wrote in to me saying, I love this new song about Lois and Clark, you know, Lois Lane and Clark Kent. Yeah. So, you know, and I said, oh, my God, some people, you know, anyway. <laughs> uh, now, although uh, the majority of your music is instrumental, uh, mm -hmm. you, you do um, have vocals, and you you really have a nice voice. Oh, uh, thank you. Well, you 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 definitely have a problem with your hearing, but anyway. <laughs> so, when it comes to that, do you have a favorite song that you like to sing? You can play the game, you can act out the part, but you know it wasn't written for you. James Taylor's uh, uh, shower the shower the people you love with love. I love that song. Yeah, yeah it's so beautifully written and yeah. But I, I mean, I, I sing on stage to break up to give the audience a break from me hosing them with my <laughs> guitar playing. But um, but I, I also you know it's amazing how many people love it when you sing and when you talk about songs and you and you just get real personal and just share your stuff just like we are now sure. i do this on stage yeah you know yeah. and people love it like last night um 
I, I played the Opry last night with um, Del McCrory Band. And when I finished, I raced straight into town to the city winery and caught the last, like, 50 minutes of Leo Kotke's show. Oh, wow. There, there was a couple of songs between all the stories. Sure. You know, because he's an incredible storyteller. Yeah. And then he's this iconic, brilliant, beautiful guitar player who has, there's only one of him. Yeah. Nobody else sounds like Leo Kotke. No. You can try as hard as you want and you will not sound like him. So true. You'll sound like someone trying to sound like him. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. Back to the vocal thing. Yeah. Um, when people see you, they they obviously talk about your uh, mastery of the instrument and, and how you can make so much music come from, from one instrument, uh, a guitar. Mm. But then they also talk about, and, and showmanship, really fall short of the proper term to use um, yeah. but it's more of how you're able to connect with the audience the um, engagement that you have the just the joy of your playing uh, comes through so much and how you Thank connect you. with the audience I think your vocals is another way in which you're able to make that connection yeah well I hope so you know, like I remember when I first started, when I first got the courage, because I had to find the courage to sing on stage, right? I was afraid to sing because I hated the sound of my own voice. But uh, when I was about 16, I, I was playing with a, with a country show and the drummer was the, was the best singer in the band and he was a great harmony singer. He had a voice like Don Everly. He, he had a high range. He could sing down low. He could sing a Roger Miller song and go down low. Or he could sing up high and sing the harmony above on an Everly Brothers song or whatever. And he said, come on, I'm going to show you how to sing. I want you to sing harmony. And I'd never sung before. And I, I was like, oh. And he said, just do this. And he showed me. He said, okay, so you follow my phrasing. And, and it, it turned out to be enlightening from a from a perspective of I got a view as to how wonderful it is to use the first instrument. And I got a feeling from it. Every time we sang together, I got chicken skin. Mm -hmm. And I knew I knew something was was I was doing something that was good for me. So I just kept singing, you know. I love it. I mean I I, I wish I was a better singer. Um but you know because some people just open their mouth and they can't sing a wrong note. It's impossible for them to be even the tiniest bit off. But for me, I got to think pitch all the time. I, I, I got to be focused and I got to be able to hear my voice and hear where we are to pitch right, you know? Sure. Um, uh, because I really care about being in tune and all that stuff. And when I hear myself not being perfect singing wise, I know it's either because I can't hear really well, you know. I let me just show you this. I wear these hearing aids. Okay. Right? Because yep. I was born with yellow fever. Oh wow. My mother and I both had yellow fever. And when I and so my hearing has been was burnt out before I even was born. When I was still in my mother, the effects of that uh fever 
had already done its thing. So I had no idea that until I was in my mid-30s that I had such a hearing deficit. Mm. I, I had just grown up with it. But it was my, my second wife who said to me one day, look, you better get your hearing tested because every time I talk to you, you say, what? You know, so I got my hearing tested and they, they diagnosed it straight away. You know, yellow fever, all those frequencies are gone. Here's normal hearing. Yours is down here. Wow. <laughs> and all this is gone, you know. So I've got these things. And when, when I'm in the studio or wearing headphones, I'm in heaven. I can hear everything. Sure. But, but you can't always do that live, you know. Right. And I haven't. The only time I've ever wore inner ear monitors was at the Olympic Games closing ceremony in 2000 because it was so massive. It was yeah. so big yeah. that we all had to have inner ear monitors so we could hear anything. Sure. You know? Anyway, I, I digress. What were we talking about? We were talking about how you're able to uh, connect with the audience. Uh, okay, well... That's something that I learned from watching other people. And when I was little, when I got a response from the audience by something I did, either I moved or I played something that they liked and they, they cheered and they clapped or whatever, that was like, oh, I better do that again. Sure. You know, I don't know what that was, but I do know that I was in love with being on stage because I wanted the audience to to laugh, to light up, to clap, to have a great time. Yeah. And when it started happening every night, it was like a drug. I got to have that. I got to have that, you know? Sure. And my, my dad would say, okay, when you play the baby elephant walk, you bend over and wiggle your ass and move like this and do that. And I did that and the audience roared laughing and had a great time. And I went backwards across, forwards across the stage. And, and it was a, the, the highlight of the show for those people, you know, this yeah. eight-year-old kid running around the stage, you know, wiggling his ass. But <laughs> I was in show business and, sure. and I got a response. So, but ne nowadays, and, and it's always been ever since I was an adult, that I tried to bring a level of honesty on stage. I tried to to be open and vulnerable and and real you know what i mean i didn't want to write a set of songs and say i'm only playing these i'm going to talk there i'm going to talk about this i'm going to do all that i didn't do any of that yeah. i all i do is make up my mind what i want to start with and then i go out and just let it and let it go yeah and and if i feel like talking i will and i'll i'll if, if i want got things to say and the audience are giving me ideas I'll I'll do that. If I don't feel talkative and I think I'll, I'll you know I'll just play, I'll do that too. You know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I always wanted to be as honest as possible. You know, as real and honest. And people know when you're putting on a show or when you're not being yourself. Or well, people know that stuff. That you know. Too many people undersell the audience. Sure. The public are watching and feeling everything. Yeah. And that's why when, when I see people in the front row and they're like, uh, you know, on their phone, I'm playing a ballad or something. They're on their phone and then they, 
you know, and then they, they talk to them, you know, I'm like, hello, I'm, I'm pouring my heart out here yeah. to you. I'm not holding anything back. If you don't want it, get the hell out, you yeah. know? Let, let somebody who yeah. cares sit in your seat. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the other night in uh, Vancouver, Canada, there was a lady and she dropped her phone like 10 times, kept dropping it and picking it up. And, yeah, and, and, and then she was trying to film me all the time. And I stopped and put my hands up. I said, just enjoy it. <laughs> and that's all I said. But she couldn't do that. Yeah. She had to have her phone and yeah. yeah. Wow. It, it's just another kind of addiction, you know. Sure, sure. That's what it is. She's totally addicted to it. Yeah. And uh I I hope she was happy with whatever she uh got on her phone. That's but right. she's it's not gonna have, you know, it's not gonna have the mojo that you're feeling in this moment. It's not on your phone. No. It's only in this moment. That's you know? right, right. Yeah. I digress. No, you're fine. So this season of the podcast has yeah. been centered around the uh, the Walnut Valley Festival in Winfield, Kansas. Yeah. And you played eight times between 2000 and 2011 and left a massive footprint on the did festival. I? Oh. You, you did. Oh, I had no idea. You did. And... People, I, this came from there. It was just uh, last week. And, and people talk about, yeah, I saw Norman Blake. I remember I saw John Hartford and I saw Doc mm. Watson. Those of us mm. that have been, you know, been going over the years. Mm. And, and, and people talk and the people will continue to talk about, yeah, I saw Tommy Emmanuel. I was there when Tommy Emmanuel played. So that's why I mean by you have uh, such a massive footprint on that on that festival what what well, some you. of your favorite memories that that you had of of playing there okay well let, let, let's go back to the start so okay. i'm 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 uh, i'm talking about uh i knew nothing about winfield sure but people who were well established there like stephen bennett yes and pat kirtley they we both hooked up at the chet atkins convention in nashville and steve both stephen and pat said you've got to play at, at winfield you've got to you got to come and play there they're gonna love you and blah 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 and i said well tell me about it and so uh they told me all, all what it was walnut valley and you they people camp out and all that and it's you know five stages and okay and and we contacted the people who ran the festival and the guy had never heard of me, and he said no straight away. Really? So he, here's how I got on Winfield. Okay. Stephen Bennett, my dear, dear friend, said to the organizer, put Tommy on the show, and if you don't think that, that, that he's, he's good enough or whatever, I will refund you his fee. I will pay his fee. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So here's what happened. The guy, booked, the guy booked me and he only organized for me to be on the small stages. Right? He wasn't going to put me on the main stage. This is my first year there. He was not going to put me on the main stage. And he was 
he was just like, I don't know this guy. I haven't a clue about him and blah, blah, blah. He's not Doc Watson, you know. Yeah. So anyway, so my first show was on stage five and we get the sound and I'm talking with the sound man and I got him to turn it to where I like it. And I had my equipment on stage and I got a big, good sound and everything. And, and then they introduced me and I start playing. And all of a sudden, it was like an exodus only coming towards you. And people just started. Well, and then all of a sudden, there were just people as far as you could see. Yeah. By the end of my set, yeah. they were going nuts, right? Yeah. They, they took photos of it. It was on the front page of the newspaper the next morning yeah. was me on page one, right? So th- that was like 11 o'clock in the morning. Then I had a six o'clock in the evening performance on stage three. Yeah. Um, and I went down there early to talk with the sound man because the PA was kind of small and it was up in the trees and there was a stage and there were already people lining up getting there uh, who'd been at the seen me for the first time. Sure. So there was some, there was, there was a rumble in the jungle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went imagine. down there and here's what I did. I took a cap, a t-shirt, uh, a video uh, and a couple of albums. And I went to the sound man, Brad, and I gave them to him and I said, please turn it up as loud as you can get it, like as big. You know, he said, oh, the guy who owns the PA might come by. You know, and I said, <laughs> I'll take the risk. Yeah. Tell him, you can tell him I'm the bad guy. You can tell him I told you you've got to do it. Yeah. And he said, all right. So he, we got a sound check and we got a sounding pretty big, right? Yeah. So by the time it was six o'clock for me to play, I couldn't get, to the stage because everyone, everybody was sitting as far as your eyes could see on both sides and they were all on the stage and they just parted so I could walk between them to get to the spit, the, the monitor and the mic. Yeah. That's it. There were just people everywhere. And so, uh, uh, and the, the organizers of the event saw that and the third day, which was a Sunday, uh, they moved me to the main stage. Ah, right. And now here's, here's, uh, here's what happened. I was getting ready. I was tuning and getting ready to go on. And the organizer guy came to me with a contract for next year. He wanted me, he wanted me to sign to come back next year. And he wanted to pay me the same lousy money that that he was paying me that, that year. And I said, I don't sign contracts. My manager, you can talk to my manager. He said, we want you to come back. I said, you can negotiate with my manager, but I'm not signing anything before I go on stage. I've got to go and play, you know? So after the event, then I finally got some time to spend with the people, the organizers of the event. And they were all extremely positive and hoping that I'd come back. And of course, I, I did come back. Yes. But the thing is, is that I, I formed a relationship that I have forever with those people at yeah. that festival. Because sure. every time I played, I signed autographs for two hours afterwards. Sure. Yeah, you know, and uh, I finished the week, and I would sleep for three days. I was exhausted from so much playing, so much jamming, so many autograph things, and all that stuff. 
but it was it was a big, uh, wonderful pleasure for me. And people are always asking me, when when are you coming back to Winfield? And blah blah blah. And it's like, ask my management, and they'll tell you. Don't ask me. I don't know. Sure. You know, I yeah. stay out of the business. I understand. You know, very good. That yeah, that's a very interesting story. Thank you for sharing that. Well, it's I only touched on a few things, but that's the realities of of show business sometimes. Sure. You know. Sure. It is. And uh, all of us, including Doc and uh, you know Pete Rowan and Sam Bush and you know, we've all been through stuff that is not what we want, or it's you know, we've had to take a few really lousy deals and all that. Sure. In all, you know, it, it happens to everybody. Yeah. But uh, you know, it depends how. Where you see yourself is what's important, you know. Uh, I've never seen myself as just a solo guitar player, ever, you know. I've always seen myself as as an artist when I walk on stage, the same kind of artist as Elton John or uh, Eric Clapton or anybody who who reaches the public. Uh, That's how I see myself. And it's not an ego thing. It's just... I have a vision for where I belong and and I need to get there. So, you know, that's why I always think, I always think in different ways to most most people. You know, most people go around like this. You know, I'm trying to go like this. You know, I want to feel part of everything that's going on out here and I want to see where I can go with this, you know. Yeah. I've, I've been in, in the music business. I've been a professional for 62 years and i feel like i'm just getting going wow mm. people can learn more about you get access to your music videos uh, tour information through your website tommyemmanuel.com dot com and mm-hmm. uh, it's a great website encourage people to uh to check you out there Thank as you. as we um have a tradition here to end each episode uh with a song and yeah. uh Tell us about the song we're going to hear. Okay. Um, well, I've chosen for your for your listeners' pleasure today, Mark. I've chosen my song "Fuel," and I I wrote this song. the 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 really the real underbelly of this is I've been playing classical gas for so long. I said I want to write something that can take classical gas and put it to the side and have something original that, that has a similar flavor. So I got on a train in Paris to go to Cologne, Germany for a show. And I started thinking about movies and movie music. And I started playing stuff. And then all of a sudden, this idea started to appear. And three hours later, I got into Cologne. I had the whole song written. And I played it that night at the show. I had no title for it and somebody said to me what's fueling this emotion and the moment they said it I said it's fuel that's the name of this song fuel because the word means many things you know what's what's our fuel for getting out there we 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 want to the the desire to give the audience a great time you know 
what I had for dinner is part of the fuel as well. Uh, how much I practiced is part of the fuel. Um, and my reasons for, for being out there is part of the fuel. People's response is part of the fuel. It's, it's, uh, it's a great word, you know, like determination. I have a song called Determination, yes. uh, which is from a long time ago. And it, it's a word that, you know, it says everything. You don't need anything else, just determination, you know? And so fuel, here it is. Let's hear it. Fantastic. Tommy, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, thank you. a pleasure to meet you, visit with you this morning. Thank, you for, you, thank, you, for, thank you for being you and sharing ah. your gift to so many people. Thanks, brother. Much appreciated. I hope we can do it again sometime. That would be great.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Music Trails, and special thanks to our guest, Tommy Emmanuel. If you like what you hear, subscribe today and tell a friend. <laughs>